Across the Pond Golf Podcast, a discussion about performance and enjoyment in golf and life. Yeah, off we go. There we go. All right, welcome to Across the Pond Golf Podcast. Today's guest is Colin Trigellis Smith. I probably butchered that, Colin. So my no, that was perfect. <laughs> my Australian's not very good. <laughs> but uh, how are things going today, Colin? Yeah, very good. I mean, a dark rainy day in Vancouver, but all in all, Nothing pretty good. New. Yeah, exactly. So we'll probably just start off, maybe get a little bit of background into you. You're an osteopathic therapist, I'm sure. Lots of people would like to know kind of what that entails. Obviously, before I worked with you, I had no idea. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll start there. Maybe tell us a little bit about the LPGA Tour and and then whatnot. So, Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I was trained as an osteopath in Australia. did my uh, master's in osteopathy there. Um, and then I worked in a couple of private practices, uh, sort of multidisciplinary ones. And then I was fortunate enough to get a position um, working on the LPGA tour full-time as a private therapist for some of the players there. And during that time, I was yeah fortunate enough to attend all the majors there and then also was the therapist for Team New Zealand at the 2016 Olympics, um, just for women's golf there, and then also for Team Australia at the Queen's Cup in Japan and did a few other team events as well, like International Crown and things like that. Um, did that for five years and then um, moved to Vancouver and practicing here as an osteopathic practitioner, slightly different um, regulations here. So just different titles, but pretty much the same thing. Um, and then I guess, yeah, just to clear up what I guess an osteo does. Um, it's a very sort of global approach to pain um, and function. So not getting too bogged down into the box of pain. So not just looking at that local area of pain, but looking to see what else is um, not functioning properly and might be causing that painful area. So maybe that painful area isn't the issue and then other areas. And then doing assessments, strength-based, movement-based um, and coordination-based as well. And then going into sort of manual techniques, uh, working muscles and joints and then after the treatment, I'll do some um, exercise pre prescription, um, pretty simple ones generally, and then from that lead into a little bit of strength work. But that's the general gist of it. Gotcha. <laughs> You're probably well. We'll get into how bad of a, a study I was for Colin, but uh, I before that, uh, one thing I definitely was curious about uh, in that. So LPGA Tour was what, about five five years for you? Yeah, five years. Awesome. And for like most, the most part, like what did you find with like a lot of the ladies as far as, let's say like what, like swing technique leading to issues and then maybe even furthermore, like when they would come for therapy to like obviously improve, how quickly would a lot of them go out and like instantly play? Um, yeah, it varied very much depending on the golfer, but most of the female golfers were very mobile, hypermobile, if anything. And then they didn't have great control of that mobility. So that was, I'd say, most of the issues. 
um, or they were just very hypermobile in one area and they'll just rely on that too much and then other areas wouldn't be functioning properly. So then that would cause a lot of issues and especially the amount they play, um, it was just amplified and that would also be amplified in their strength training, what other, other modalities they were doing. It was just amplified, so really dialing it down. Um, but often, yeah, you'd see a player through the season and they'll, you'd pretty much treat them and they'll play straight away. So um, you had to be sort of mindful of how strong you did treatment so that they weren't too sore on the golf course, um, but also make sure that, you know, what you do did benefit them throughout the round and obviously, hopefully that stays with them and not just a short-term fix. Um, so, yeah, sort of my philosophy of treatment is that what I do does have an impact and that impact carries on throughout their day-to-day. So I tend not to say don't do anything. I say go out and use it. Whatever change has been facilitated, go out and use it and hopefully that stays with them. Yeah, and I, what, one more follow-up just on this because I know in working with you, you mentioned this as well. Where, you know, obviously playing professional golf is like this dream thing for a lot of people. And the ladies game's a lot, probably a lot different. Whereas unless you're probably in the top 25 on the money list, like they need to play every week. It's like, like their jobs at stake, like their financial situation where like, obviously the men, if you're on the PGA tour, even if you're on the corn Ferry tour, your, your job stability, your financial place is, you know, pretty secure, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. There's. There's a lot to do, yeah, with the financial side and sponsorship is a big thing. Um, the men have a lot more sponsorships, uh, so they don't have to play to be getting continuous income. But with the women, the sponsorship deals are quite a bit smaller and they're reliant on how, when you appear as well. Uh, so the contract bases are, are vastly different. Um, and a lot of them have a minimum requirement of tournaments they have to play to get that contract endorsement as well. So there is a lot of financial commitment, um, time commitment as well that they do have to have and that impacts them. And yeah, if they're injured, they do have to play around it. They can't say, well, I'm going to take some time off, some of them. And some of them, it is based on their tour card too. Maybe they haven't played great that year. So they have to continue playing, getting the points for the year so they can retain their card as well. So there is there is a little bit more pressure on that standpoint, not just performance space, but yeah, that monetary issue as well. And Colin, so, so like, how important would you say, uh, obviously through the season and then like into the off season, like how important is it to build that that solid sort of structural base as far as like your sort of body's capabilities are, um, in order to just continually perform at a high level? Because I think a lot of people neglect the the physical aspects of it once it gets to season. It's easy to just so well, we won't worry about the gym and the mobility stuff. We'll just continue to play, and, and that's kind of the, that's it for six months. But, I, like, you know, so what would an average LPGA tour player, what would their day look like, even, even during like a, a tournament, as far as actual practice compared to, you know, uh, compared to recovery work and strength work and, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is vastly different. Um, obviously, the off-season was where you get most of their strength-based threshold. So that's where I sort of recommend they do most of their intense work and get that high ceiling of function and strength. 
So then throughout the season, as they fatigue, it dwindles, but it's still a manageable state. Because if they start at a low ceiling throughout a long season with a lot of travel, a lot of tournament, it just continually decreases strength and mobility and fatigue. So then you get closer to that threshold of injury. So if we're going to have a high ceiling, then we can reduce the risk of injury. Can't say prevent it um, because it's inevitable sometimes. But in terms of tournament weeks and recovery and training, I mean, they're very diligent. They, you know, are probably getting up even a early uh, early round of golf, like a 7 a.m. tee time. They're probably getting up three hours before a round, doing some mobility, getting, you know, a bit of food in. And then they get to the golf course. They do even more sort of mobility work, some activation work, whatever they're working on. And then a pretty thorough warm-up as well, short game included, which a lot of amateurs won't include. Um, and then a very structured warm-up, nothing too intense, um, really working on more technique. Alignment's a big thing that pretty much all the pros work on that a lot of amateurs neglect. That's usually what they start with. Um, and then they'll just progress throughout the clubs and really diligent, not just hammer away balls, take their time. Cause also that's part of the fatigue factor as well. The nervous system, if you're just bashing balls, it's not just your energy system, but also your nervous system that needs to recover. So they allow that between shots too, um, taking their time with that as well. And really more tournament mindset, every shot they do line up and make sure they go through their pre uh, swing routines, even on the practice range. So let's, let's say that you're a, a normal club golfer and you turn up Saturday morning, you've, you've got your monthly medal or, or whatever it is. You get to the tee, you have a cup of coffee, maybe a chocolate bar, and you take two practice swings and tee off. You know, like, what should you expect versus obviously a structured warm-up? And, and sort of how important would that structured warm-up be? Because there's such a gulf between professional golfers and amateur golfers in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there's, there's a lot of sort of data on the importance of a, of a dynamic warm-up and, and a well-structured warm-up and how it can impact a round of golf. Um, so could you just like sort of dive into that and, and explain the pitfalls of not having a, a very good warm-up? Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of pitfalls. It depends on how long your drive is to the golf course too. <laughs> yeah. Obviously you're going to stiffen up there. Um, but then obviously one thing is reduced mobility. So you can't expect to have that parallel golf club at the top of the swing on the first tee as you're nice and cold, but also uh, your nervous system isn't up to scratch and isn't going to fire the way you want it to. So you might, you won't be getting the speed that you want to, you won't be getting the right muscles to the fire that you want to, or that you think are going to. So maybe understanding that and going to the first tee and, uh, not letting the driver rip, just trying to get that good contact first and warm up throughout the round is what I would suggest. But even, you know, five, 10 minutes just at the car, just on a few stretches will, will be greatly beneficial. Um, maybe while you wait for your coffee to brew in the clubhouse while they're making espresso or something like that, you can just do a little bit of stretching and that will improve something. Um, just a little bit, just to get your body aware that you're going into some sort of activity. Is what well, I think I it's difficult for people because that you know, let's face it, a, a structured dynamic warm up, you, you can kind of look silly doing it. I mean, let, let's call it what it is. And I think for a lot of people, it's 
they just don't want to appear to, to look stupid. And then obviously on top of that, if you go out and you don't perform and you've got your, you know, you've got your mates who are playing and they beat you and they haven't done anything and you've been and done all this warming up and, and, and you've still lost. I mean, you, you know, you're going to have the, the piss ripped out of you for that one. Um, so I think it's just kind of trying to change people's understanding of, of actually the importance of it and, and, try and remove that label of, of looking like a prat um, yeah. and, and just getting over that, isn't it? Yeah, it's very much, I mean, a lot of the mobility stuff, I think maybe the mentality change of it's not purely specifically just for that round. It's so you can continue to play throughout the summer, yeah. especially here in Canada, it's a shorter season. So you really want to take advantage of it. You know, guys are starting to play three, four rounds. If you go in cold and really, you know, you know, you might lack some thoracic rotation and you're just relying on your lower back to twist. And then over the season, it's just going to be detrimental to you. So you've got to think about maybe it's so it's beneficial for the whole summer for you to do it, not just specifically that round. Um, they might have a little bit more buy-in that way. Uh, it's all about, yeah, getting that person to understand the value of it. Uh, so it, it is a tough one. And you just got to find you know, maybe the right wording, maybe the right structure, maybe the right goal to find their worth in the dynamic warm-ups. Yeah, yeah all right. Colin, I was going to ask one more just on kind of what can you do throughout the round? Like, let's say you're playing a competitive event. It's a long round. It's four and a half, five hours. Like, I'm sure a lot of the pros, this is a thing for them. Maybe it's cold. Maybe it's, it's rainy. You're backed up on a par three or a drivable par four. What are things that you can do like throughout the round to like keep the body like mobile and not getting like stiff and, and uh, whatnot? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of things. Um, I think again, going back on that dynamic warm up, people feeling stupid about it. Uh, there's a lot of ones that they think they can only do on the ground. There's ways you can modify a lot of things, um, just standing, using the golf bag, using golf clubs as just a tool to help you. Um, so just using that in the background um, and then going through some of those warm-ups, whatever. Everyone has some sort of weakness or um, a decreased flexibility somewhere, so you can always work on that um, in the background when you're waiting, when it's a bit colder to keep warm. Um, and then having some other, if it is a cold round, just be prepared is another thing. A lot of the players, when they do go into cold areas, they'll have sort of heat packs within uh, their bags, multiple, although they get the caddy to carry it. So it doesn't bother them that it's heavy, but um, yeah, just put in your push card and have some heat packs in there to keep you warm. Uh, but that, that, that's some strategies. You will see it on tour like it, it's obviously not shown on tv because it's it's not that fancy but a lot of players will go through some sort of again another mini warm-up one or two minutes that they have focused on or found a deficiency in and they'll be working on that Fair. and so you've worked with obviously the best female golfers in the world have you seen a few of them get a little bit too ambitious with like swing changes speeds pretty much anything to like try and improve their game. Like they're already at the top of the game. They're trying to get better, which is totally respectable. I do remember one instance where you talked about one female golfer, like she was picking the golf ball, like a, like sweeping it off the, off the ground. And I think someone did try to get her to get more compression, take divots. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and what you saw out there. Yeah, there's, 
obviously they're always tinkering with their swing, but the biggest issue comes is when there's too much of a drastic change um, or the swing doesn't fit their type of body. Maybe, yeah, like the player that sweeps the, um, the ball is usually not getting too much of a divot, suddenly changed to quite a steeper swing and then getting a big divot. Um, it's, it's a huge change to them. And it's usually that drastic change. The body hasn't had a, change, a chance to adapt to it. So maybe it is increased strength in the wrists or um, in that swing plane. And then they expect that to carry on throughout uh, a full season where they're just playing day to day, don't have time to recover from that change. And that's where usually it happens. Like it's just too much of a drastic change. And also a little bit of sometimes a clash in philosophies um, whether it be from the golf coach and the trainer, maybe the golf coach more working on speed, but then the trainer is working purely on mobility. So there is that clash there as well. And they don't complement each other. And sometimes that's where it arises. So that's a little bit of onus on both everyone that's involved, more communication there to understand what each person's working on and make sure that philosophy aligns. Um, and then... Yeah, always people changing clubs uh, is another big thing too. Um, changing driver was is always a contentious one. People testing, 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 and then fatiguing themselves and then expect to have a great round the next time and then getting frustrated why it's not working and then putting in more effort, more fatigue, and, and it's a cascade of events. But, um, yeah, it is – you're at that pinnacle and you've got to stay there and everyone's improving. So you try and keep on – you try and stay ahead. Um, they're trying to get too much of a change in a short time and they really got to sit back and assess and get someone else to have a look at it too to tell them that these changes are going to take longer but have these smaller goals within there for this global change. I think it's, it's important, Rob, that – it's well it's just kind of a, a fault of all golfers that we just want to improve like now um and as soon as you identify a weakness that that's it we're going to go and hit four thousand balls on the range today and and we'll have it fixed by tomorrow and it, it doesn't work out that way and and that's kind of the the tricky thing to to get your head around but i thought that was a really interesting point that you made with regards to your coach and your trainer being on the same page because I think quite often you'll get players of all levels I mean obviously a lot of amateurs don't see a trainer specifically for golf um, I, I think we could recommend that most people do because it's just a, such a beneficial thing to do um, but even at the sort of professional level you'll see guys you know they're working on one thing with the trainer like you say and 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 then they, they go and see the coach and they say oh well like you say we'll work on speed we want to get the speed up or or we want to work on this particular movement pattern without really even considering if that's a possibility for that player at the time. So do you think it's it's sort of um, a hand-in-hand -hand thing where you have to try and manage the body and the movement change all at once? Like from your perspective, would you prefer the coach to talk to you and say, this is what we're trying to do with the swing can the body do it? And if not, how can we get the body to do it? Or should we just change path and go a different route? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the best coaches I counted on tour were the ones that were willing to communicate with everyone on board. And yeah, definitely 
the best thing is to do to is to ask, can they do it? If not, what amendments that can they do to get there? Or what can I do so that they can get there? Um, that is, it is a huge thing. I, you know, Chris coming in, it was one of the things that did cause his injuries um, was he was trying <laughs> to get a swing in that his body wasn't able to adapt to, but yeah. he had, hadn't had any communication with anyone else that could help him get that swing. Maybe if he had someone to help him with that swing, his body movements, his patterns, um, then he might not have had suffered that injury. But because he continued to use his bad patterns and stressed particular areas where he only had movement, and that's where the issues arise. So definitely that communication is really needed. And it really comes from assessment. Um, coaches are getting much, getting much better at assessing as well um, and understanding what limitations they have. And then you know, they get the idea of the sort of global restrictions and they'll send it off to people that do the finer um, assessments like myself or other trainers as well to really get a better understanding what exactly is happening and then improve that. Yeah, because, I mean, like the biomechanics side of golf, it is becoming more and more popular, I think. And there's obviously a lot of debate whether it's ruining the game and people are getting far too technical and just swing the club. But I think it's so crucial that, particularly with the the loads of everyday life as well, it, you know, people really need to be aware of, of what their limitations are. And, it, and it, I think it is important for coaches to, to realise the, uh, the stresses and strains of golf on the body because they are great. And I don't think people particularly understand how, how demanding it is as a, as a sport. Um, but what would you say is the biggest difference with males and females because obviously everyone's uh, body's different but say from the females that you've coached to, to the males what what do you think is is the most sort of important thing as a bit of a generality um that they can work on because obviously a lot of women are more flexible naturally than the men so what should they be working on more perhaps than than obviously the men who maybe should be working more on mobility yeah, with women, yeah, it is that hypermobility um, and get it, gaining strength in that mobility. They might not have complete control of it. So getting more of that awareness at towards that end range of their mobility is, is an important one. And then uh, applying some strength on top of that and in a gradual fashion too. Um, there is, again, that issue of they apply too much strength too quickly um, so, and then their patterns break down. So really that gradual increase into all their movement patterns is really important. And for the men, yeah, it, it typically is the mobility issue. Uh, and they'll try and overcome that with strength and they'll use their strength using bad patterns to swing the golf club. Uh, it works in the short term. You know, if you're only playing once a week, maybe less than that, but when you start to, increase your rounds, increase your practice, that's when the issues arise and you'll start to know. So people can get away with it if they're not playing all that much. Uh, but particularly with summer coming up, people planning to play more, that, that's when the issues will come on. So working on that mobility and then the proper patterning, because a lot of the guys have that strength already, let's apply that strength properly and then they'll be able to play throughout the whole season without too many issues. Yeah, because if you've got a faulty pattern and then you just try and increase strength on top of that, it, it's only going to end one way, isn't it? You know, and it's not 
it's not with improved health and and, uh, and performance. It's you're going to end up sidelined, aren't you? And uh, on the physio table. Yeah, exactly. But uh, another thing is like when people get injured. Um, you know, with Chris, it's like, oh, I, I got to stop or either just continue through. You, you got to modify it. For a lot of people, golf is is really important to them. It's a way to relieve stress and things like that. So you do get the odd therapist that go, oh, you just got to stop. But in reality, really just got to modify it because, again, they'll lose that conditioning or they'll lose that mobility or they'll lose that feel and they go straight back and think they can play the way they used to and then they're back on the table again. So really understanding how to modify things and maybe work on something they didn't use to like short game for a lot of amateurs. Um, so they still get the joy out of playing golf and not be so frustrated and uh, just revolt and go out and play full games and just hinder themselves even more and more. Yeah. I'll like, I'll give a little background on this. I know like the first three months basically that I had this injury, it was essentially, you know, someone told me just, yeah, don't do anything. Right. Just let like the, let the muscle recover and whatnot. And there was like a little bit of time, like trying to figure out what the issue was as well. But I, you know, three months of not really doing much and then going back and playing, trying to play golf a lot and like run my normal life, hike, get outside, do stuff. Like it kind of like a drastic change to another drastic change. And then that's when I saw Colin. So it was back to, okay, like let's, start from like a little bit and then keep going and building and that's one thing that you told me is just keep moving always keep doing stuff and you'll kind of figure out what it is that like brings on inflammation or or pain but keep moving throughout it so I, I think the question I've got is you know how do you know when you have an injury like what's too much versus the too little aspect of it yeah that, that is a tough one um uh, you, yeah, you really got to reflect back a little bit more and see what your threshold is. Um, really what brings it on there. People, when they reflect on themselves, they don't really understand that there is a pattern. But when you uh, do look into it, there is a pattern that you can see somewhat of a threshold and you go, all right, that's it. Let's dial it back just a little bit from there. Stay within that. And then after you've stayed within that, let's push it up and see if there is that improvement. You still got to test it. You still got to sort of try and push that threshold a little bit. Um, so that comes from reflection and understanding and taking the time to see where the limitation is and then just dial it back a little bit. And then after working on that, being getting that confidence back is quite big as well. Not having that apprehension in specific movements um, and then building that confidence and then, you know, the confidence in that movement pattern will also improve it. That apprehension will always disrupt movement patterns. Um, so, and fear of pain is, is huge and that will generally bring on pain anyway. Um, so pain is much more of a mental side of things than just purely physical and the information side. So yeah, you do have to sort of reflect and have a look back and it usually helps to have someone to talk through it with as well. Are there any sort of techniques or, or sort of apps or, or anything like that? Because obviously it's it's very difficult to quantify things when it's just feeling based. Like, are there any are there any sort of ways you could recommend that people do reflect on that sort of stuff, or is it just kind of practice it and, and just hone it as you go? 
Um, I mean, the whoop band now is a, is a big one that's big on the golf tour. I think pretty much all, all the golfs are wearing it. You know, that's showing the stress that you've been put through and understanding, you know, a golf round is a lot more stress than we once thought. Um, and especially if it's tournament play as well. So having that objective measure is a really great tool to understand how much stress there is. So you might not do as much after that. Or if there was a light load and your recovery is quite good, then you can push it that next day as well. But um, as you work through it, people will get much more awareness. So they will get that feel base. Um, but having a lot more structure, say, you know, even though you feel good, you're doing in that time, it's 30 swings on the drive range. Don't push past. Let's just objectively measure that. Even though you feel great, it's good that you're feeling good after 30 swings. Keep it at that and then the next week. So it, it is difficult to have that objective measure. But um, say, for instance, when Chris came, I'll have all my tests that, um, that it were not good and then they were good as well. So when he comes back in, There's I a lot more not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were some good ones. There's always has to be some sort of positive reinforcement or they won't feel good going out of the session. So making sure that you do have someone that can reflect back on your previous issues and tell you that you have improved and that that's going to be helpful to that positive reinforcement. I think for our listeners, they're just going to... Well, I was going to say the craziest thing that happened when I was the first session I had with Colin... And obviously it was an ab injury that I had. I was just like calling, like, I can't do a double leg lift. Like, no, there's just no chance. And he's like, okay, like, let's just see, like, let's try it out. And like, right at the start, can't do it. And yeah, about 30 minutes later, as he's ran me through some of the testing, identified a couple of areas. By the end of the session, the first session, I was able to do a double leg lift with no pain. It was crazy. And like, <laughs> I like, I, and again, it's just that awareness that you talk about Colin and a little bit as well of, like the, the stress that you can put on yourself and that runs throughout your body that like you're scared to do it. So it's like that, that instant reaction of like fight or flight for your body. And also I think uh, if you're scared of pain, it's very easy to start, you know, maybe snatching at movements or, or trying to protect it, that, that particular area, which then in turn just puts strain on other parts of your body that aren't used to that that mo like that motion uh, or the or the strain, and then you injure somewhere else, as well as the the injury that you're trying to protect, right? Yeah, it, it, the protection is a is a huge thing, and it is a good uh, initial um, feedback from your body to stop that area getting injured even more. But um, yeah, people continue to move through it and get that injury, so. Yeah, it is, particularly with Chris, it's, you know, having someone there telling them that in a safe place to be able to do it and do it pain-free is huge as well. And having that positive feedback and knowing that you can do it will then break down his protective patterns. So having that reinforcement and then going home and being able to do those is going to be really uh, positive for them. And then it is a little bit of that placebo factor too, that, that positive feedback, that pain will diminish just purely because of that too. Um, not necessarily the injury is better, but that their mental state is better too. So um, yeah, getting into somewhere that someone you trust and have good recommendations from and getting that safe area and doing it, it is, is a huge part of it. Because I suppose pain is just the, the body's way of, of saying 
let's take it easy for a bit. Like this isn't feeling too great, but the the pain that you feel could, should we say, be exaggerated compared to the the actual injury that you, you may be carrying, uh, and having yeah, that awareness could help. Yeah, definitely. Pain doesn't always mean that there is an injury. Uh, it's just a, your body's response to a threat. So if it feels like it is a threatening move or that it could potentially cause injury, that, that pain signal will be there. It's just a signal from the brain. So understanding if there is true injury damage, then yes, we do have to do proper management of it. But sometimes there isn't. And it's just the, a, the way the brain's saying that this area is maybe under threat and then it's sending that message. So understanding that because pain can be present barring physical damage, unless there was that true traumatic incident. Often it's it's sort of crept up and it's just appeared, but there wasn't a specific incident that caused that injury. So understanding that aspect as well is uh, really important. And so Claude, one thing I we definitely want to ask you about uh, uh, speed in the game right now is it's a huge topic of discussion. Everyone wanting to get longer off the tee, hit, hit the ball further and whatnot. Um, definitely something that you want to talk about that probably isn't discussed enough is like how the body decelerates in the club when the swing is finishing. And I'm sure that there's some <laughs> physical implications there if you wanted just to get into that. Yeah, I think um, a big part of injury is the body's inability to decelerate or dissipate force. Um, so, you know, particularly with the goal swing, rotating, and then that lead, maybe sometimes that lead hip is taking too much of that pressure and not the whole system is able to decelerate that force that we've created. Uh, so I think that's one of the biggest things with injury um, is to be able to dissipate force throughout the whole system. Um, and then that's where those movement pans come and they'll be in poor movement patterns and then really load one specific area. And then you add speed on top of it and it's just amplified a lot more. So I think getting people in the training situation, whatever it may be to accept force before producing it. I think that's, that's the first stage for me when people come in is always to accept force before producing. And so how would you go about sort of training for that? Um, it, it will involve a lot of, um, I, I tend to do a lot more isometric work. So, which is holding positions, um, and understanding that the muscular should be musculature should be taking the force rather than the joints, uh, because they have the ability to recover quite a bit faster. Um, and they have a lot more lengthening properties than, uh, your typical ligaments and things like that. Um, that's usually my first stage. And then we'll go into sort of the eccentric. So where the muscles lengthening. So getting that muscle to lengthen under load um, and teaching that is the first stage. And then on top of that, then we'll start to add in your creating forces. So your concentric movements. So you're shortening your muscles um, and uh, producing force. And that'll be the second stage. So through a range of sort of, there's, there's hundreds of exercises out there and just writing, finding the right mix um, and then make sure that that person can, understands it too. Uh, that's a big part. A lot of people go to the gym and just be shown exercises, but they don't really understand the principle behind it. Um, you will get much better outcomes if the person understands. And then once they understand the principles, they can apply it to a lot of other exercises. And they're probably more 
open to going slowly as well. Once once it's uh, obviously been understood, then you can you can sort of immerse yourself in the whole process rather than just I want to get stronger, I want to get faster. It's like okay, well, no, I understand why we're doing this, but I also understand the the dangers of trying to go too quickly and and just just pace yourself and, and build it gradually because I think the most sort of foolish thing to do is invest time and effort in, in training to improve your golf, but then injuring yourself in the gym and say you can't even go and play golf anyway. Um, and I, I think we're all, we're all guilty of getting carried away. But I, I, I do think it's, I've never heard it put that way, almost when trying to gain speed, start at the end and sort of work your way backwards. Um, so that you actually have the ability to withstand those forces at the end, because quite often it's very much just swing as hard as you can. Uh, and that's how you gain speed. But again, like you say, if, if you can't stop yourself, we don't have the control, then uh, it's only going to go one way. Yeah. And definitely um, understanding the limitations of power too. We can't produce hundred percent maximal efforts all the time. And I think that's what's not shown currently the PGA tour, you know, whenever you see highlights, it's guys that are going hundred percent, but they probably swing a drive hundred percent, maybe twice, three times in the round, but an amateur will go do it every single every shot. <laughs> uh, and understand that it's too fatiguing for the body. The body can't produce that quick signal all the time. Uh, so there is that um, misconception of it. And I understand that even in the gym, say you're doing the speed work, you can't do that speed work like you would do a general strength training. You have to have more recovery. You need the body to recover quicker and understand those energy systems as well is, is a big part of um, reducing the risk of injury and then improving things in the gym as well. Yeah, and we've, we've talked about this as well, Colin. I think the swing, like the speed stuff that is going on on say the PGA tour, um, whereas someone that works like a nine to five job, you know, I, James and I kind of both in that situation, James works for quite a while, like a labor job. He's getting a, he just got hired as a head golf professional. So <laughs> nice job, James. Yeah, nice job for me, bad, bad job for the golf club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but like, and for myself, it's more of a desk job, kind of like sitting around all day. But for a lot of people, if you like wanted to go and say build speed or like do that gym work, doing what those guys on the PGA Tour are doing aren't, it's not really possible because of what you're enduring during the actual day. Maybe just talk a little bit about, about that as far as what you see sometimes with people trying to just work their job, go play golf, maybe even work out in the morning and like they can't take the strain. Yeah, yeah, it is very dependent on person to person how well they take care of themselves. But yeah, you can't, again, the, the neurological side of things is probably bigger in that stage. Uh, you've come from a pretty low state or it depends how stressful your day was. If it's really stressed, you're pretty neurologically fatigued too. So then you can't produce those movements, those speed movements. Um, so I think maybe taking a different approach to the golf game, just taking it as a de-stressor rather than just trying to, create immense amounts of speed when your body's really stiff, especially at a desk job or James, who was working um, a labor job that's really fatigued. Um, you're not going to be able to produce those speeds um, after doing that as well. So 
again, it comes to a little bit of that mobility side of things. Um, but if you're going straight after that, understanding your limits and what you can work on in, in a round after work. And then maybe on the weekends where you do have time where you're refreshed, then you can just hammer away at the driver a little bit more than uh, post, post work. I think we've both found out, haven't we, Chris? Obviously, you mentioned the wearables earlier, Colin, but obviously they're, they're becoming more and more popular. Um, but it is crazy just how fatiguing a, a normal day is, how strenuous it is on your body. Um, and obviously, uh, you're aware of the whoop, but I'll get back home from work and I'm like 14, 15 strain. And then what well, I can't expect to go and put in a range session for an hour and a half, two hours or go and play nine holes, it's just, you're going to wear yourself out completely. So I think you write, like, just make, have a bit of a rethink. Don't be afraid to do less if it means that you're going to be able to perform at a higher level when you do get to the course on a weekend. Because I think a lot of people think, if, if I don't get this session in on Thursday night or Friday night, I won't play well on a weekend. In actual fact, it might be that just relaxing and doing nothing will actually be better for them uh, for their weekend golf um, as opposed to, to overdoing it. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, working on different parts of the game as well is, is going to be beneficial to them. I remember Caddy telling me a story about um, Jason Day. Obviously, he's had his issues with um, injuries and things like that. And But, you know, his rate, range sessions are he doesn't hit many balls because he knows the taxing effect of it, but yeah. it takes him 45 minutes to hit 20, 30 balls because every shot is so precise with it. And there's something that he's trying to work on. So that's another strategy for him to decrease the strain on his body by making sure that every shot counts. Um, and they're reflecting back on every shot too. So it is, it is a frustrating way to step back and do it, but that, that's another strategy uh, to do things or maybe working on that mobility stuff that your osteo or physio gave you um, instead of going to the range might be, might be the better option. Yeah, I, I think um, you've hit the nail on the head there, obviously, the quality of your work. And it's such a cliche, isn't it? You know, quality over quantity and all that sort of stuff. But I think people do fall into the, the sort of mindset that I just need to hit more balls. That's how I'm going to get better. Uh, but when I, when I first started working with my, my coach at the moment, he said to me, you know, 10 great practice shots are, are far more beneficial than 400, uh, 80%. Uh, and, and it's true, you know, you've really got to dive into that focus. And if you just go to the range, and it's difficult because you make the journey to the range, it might take you 15, 20, 30 minutes to get there. If you're only there for sort of 20 minutes and you've hit 10 balls, it's hard to say, that's a good session, but quite often that could be far better than going and trying to whack your way through a hundred. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, it definitely is hard to reflect back on it and slow yourself down. Um, but as you experience more and, and that's part of it, just finding what works for you is part of it too and how to dial yourself back. Um, but, and then... I think another thing with that is um, I think I talked through with Chris with this also like uh, choosing the club you start with is also another big thing. You uh, you see a lot of guys that might go straight to wedge because they think it's the shortest club and it's the easiest, but really in terms of body position, it's, it's not the easiest on your body. Uh, so understanding that, you know, usually a six iron or something like that where it's a nice, easy setup, 
hands under your shoulders and things like that is probably the best way to start and getting that understanding. And that's just coming through experience and um, starting to change your mindset that every, everything is just a way to learn, I think is, is the biggest aspect that um, I want people to understand that whatever you do, you just learn from it. Um, so that, that's the biggest impact, I think. Which, which club in the bag do you think puts your body like the most strain? Would it be the driver just due to the, like the speed and like the length of it? Or could it be something as short as a wedge? Yeah, it really depends on what your ailments are. Um, particularly if it's more towards sort of uh, rotational issues. So lower back, hip and upper back sort of stuff. It would be the driver just with pure speed. Uh, but if it's maybe some impact issues, so wrists, uh, it'll be more towards the wedges or the, the longer irons where the impact on the wrist is a little bit higher. So that's, again, how you should modify it depending on your injury too. So if you've got an injury, you might not hit those full wedges as much and maybe a little bit more into the hybrids where you're not getting as much impact forces. So it really depends on the per individual's uh, injury issues. That's, that's a good point too, because like, I mean, if you do have wrist issues, as you know, in Vancouver, up until probably, yeah, the next couple of weeks, like most of the grass ranges are closed. So you're going to be hitting off a mat with concrete underneath the mat. So it's going to make it that much worse. Yeah. And I think people, a lot of amateurs don't understand that too, the mat issue. Uh, it's a lot more force into the wrist uh, and it promotes a little bit more of those bad swing habits, you know, they'll bounce off the mat and then they'll still be able to make contact where on the, on a grass range, if they hit the ground, they're just not going to be able to make that. So it, it is easy for those bad moving pants to be reinforced, especially on mats. Uh, so, and they can just hit off the same spot. Whereas a grass range, you do have to take time to move the ball as well. So all those things are very impactful to the overall um, spectrum of injury management. What I will say, just quickly, you know, obviously uh, with the mat issue, is that in the UK, most driving ranges, are, they're, they're off, uh, off mats. So we've got the same problem. And for a while, you know, I was working on some technical changes and, and my club of choice for, for a lot of it was an eight iron. And I've, so I've hit balls, you know, hundreds of balls. And I've looked at my club and the shaft is bent, just, just <laughs> due to hitting off. Like, and it wasn't insignificant. I mean, it was it was bent. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I don't remember throwing it or, or wrapping it around a tree, but it was literally from hitting off a mat. And you just I've think, seen him do that a few times too, but... <laughs> what, hit off a mat or... or uh, no, you know, we, we don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's crazy that if it's doing that to a metal club, like, it's not going to be too, too clever for your wrists, is it? No, and uh, particularly when it comes to amateur golfer, it's a much steeper swing too. So it's even more impact on the wrist. So, uh, they, yeah, teaching that again, the, the, the learning curve with that is, uh, is very important. And if, you know, they don't talk to a golf pro or someone like myself and don't understand that mats are much more impactful on your wrist particularly, uh, they'll just continue going with it and not understand why they keep getting injured or these movement patterns are, are not clearing up. And how important, just talking about injuries, how important is it for people who even have such a, a small niggle or, or let's say, I mean, lower back pain is such a common one or, or even in the neck. Um, 
going and seeing someone because the, the chances are, like you said earlier, that that's just the referred pain and sort of the trigger point is elsewhere. And people might just try and stretch their back or stretch their neck, but that's not actually causing the problem. Uh, and how important is it to see someone to just actually determine where the, the uh, sort of initiation of that injury is? Yeah, particularly if they want to continue playing, it, it is going to be a detriment whenever there's pain. It's going to affect strength. Um, it's going to affect their movement patterns too. So, I mean, there's there's plenty of stories I can reflect back on the LPGA Tour, like people that have had sort of elbow issues or things like that. They've had that pain injury. And, you know, I might recommend that they do take a little bit of time off and work on it, but they continue to play and then, all of a sudden their wrist is blown out another day and they've had to get season ending wrist surgery and things like that. So it can have a massive impact on other areas that can really have a really damaging impact, not just on their golf, but even in their day-to-day uh, -day activity as well. So um, that's really a big thing. I just had, you know, a couple of people come in that they've had golf related injuries, but now it's really affecting the day-to-day -day life. They can't sleep very well. And then it affects everything, their concentration towards work. So even the small sort of issues can have a great impact later on down the track. So it's really important to make sure you do get it assessed and treated properly. So then it doesn't affect you later down on the track. And even if you're just a recreational golfer, I think it is important to see yourself as a, as a sort of an athlete, at least a, a part-time athlete, because... As you say, if it starts to bleed into your day to day, it's not worth it. You have to, you have to draw the line at some point and, and just say, "Is it enough?" Um, and and like we've we've seen with Tiger over the years, you know, I mean, it's the perfect example. Someone who just kept doing more, doing more, and and rightly or wrongly, um, but he's ended up obviously with so much trouble when when potentially it could have been avoided. Yeah, definitely. And reflecting back on Tiger, I think a lot of people like it was his strength and it was the way he swung the club and things like that. I think it was really just a matter of too much. You look at his daily routines, he's waking up at 4.30 and doing running and then playing golf, playing tennis and then doing strength training and running more. I think I don't think it was it's never one thing. It's always just an accumulation. I don't think you'd say one golf swing, you know, broke his back. It was just the amount of strain he put himself day to day not having that rest uh, was the biggest impact that caused him to have a lot all those issues that he had rest is so important and I think it's starting to get a bit more traction but it's still not there is it you know I think it's still the do more we, we, if you want to be the best you've got to work harder than everyone else and and perhaps not the case yeah and I think there is something there's you know I talk about like relative rest so you know, you might not do a full strength training session, but you can still do a minor one where you work on a few different things. But it's relatively um, much more decreased intensity than other things. So rest doesn't always mean you just lie down and sit on the couch. It can be active recovery. It can be relative rest compared. And it depends varying on your activity levels and where your threshold is. And so people that can't sit down and do anything, all right, do this, which is relative rest for them but it'll be beneficial for you in your recovery. Yeah, because, like, I mean, the Tour de France, sort of, the, you know, the long-distance cyclists and stuff like that, I mean, even on their days off, the, 
there's a lot of uh, sort of talk that they ride a hundred miles just on a on a stationary bike or, or whatever it is, just to sort of have that active recovery. And I think that's that's like you say, it's all relative because at their level that is recovery, but for your average person, that's a a full blown. Well, they'll put you in the hospital, you know, doing something like that. So it is relative, but I think like you say, it's it's crucial to figure out what your baseline sort of level is and then and then build it from there yeah and that finding that baseline is is always hard um and it's frustrating and you do have to swallow a bit of pride and understand that maybe your baseline isn't as good as you thought it was um and again understanding that and getting people to buy into that it, it is the hardest part of sort of our world and um and that's where sort of the assessment stuff that reinforces that um showing their capabilities uh and their what they're not capable of doing is is really important just talking to them it usually isn't enough to provide that that is their baseline yeah i mean talking of baselines obviously uh i got the whoop uh strap november i think and I thought I was quite a healthy, you know, fit person and, and whatnot. And then you start, obviously, there's a lot of uh, talk about heart rate variability and, and the higher it is, the, the sort of healthier you are. So obviously, as, uh, as time's gone on and I've looked at my heart rate variability and, and compared to other WHOOP users for my age group, it's really quite low. And I thought, well, I, I thought I was quite fit and healthy, but if that is a, a sort of metric to be measured, then maybe I need to be doing a bit more and, and change things up a little bit but without that uh sort of data and that feedback i wouldn't have known and you just carry on doing what you're doing don't you yeah exactly it is it is hard without those object objective measures um but for me a lot of people will just concentrate on the intensity of one session um but really it's the benefit comes from frequency so just uh, doing little things throughout the day is much more beneficial than, you know, particularly for desk workers sitting eight hours and then doing a one hour session, doing, you know, just even if it's a couple minutes here and there, again, it would change that heart rate variability is going to be much more beneficial than just blocking it off for one hour. So um, understanding that aspect and, it, and it's going to be uh, mentally, vi uh, the vitality of the mental state is going to be much better as well. And that's an important factor. So, it is hard without those objective measures, though, and, and these are great tools and very accessible for anyone. So, it, it is very helpful. They're really not that expensive, are they? Now, you know. It's not <laughs> Cole, I think I got one more. We'll see if James has another. But uh, one thing I was going to ask you about, because all three of us wear Vivos, um, like bare, so barefoot uh, footwear. What What do you like about? like vivos and barefoot like minimalist shoes and then what could maybe be some of the dangers as well um what i like about the barefoot shoes is again you have to learn how to accept force whenever you land on your foot you got to accept that ground reaction force and that's only done with the barefoot shoes because there isn't anything like a cushion that we'll take that force. And then we can rely on, again, those bad patterns where we can rely on joints because the cushion's taking that force for us. Uh, but with the barefoot shoes, you, you can't rely on getting, getting heel strike to get you places because it's just going to get irritated. 
Um, and then it, it allows for the positioning, a lot more variable movement. You're able to uh, react to different movements. Whereas if you're typically in a cushion shoe, you're heel striking in a really dorsiflex motion where your foot's up, it's, there's not much movement in the foot in that state. So then you're going to have to rely somewhere else for movement. So it can cause effects up the change, change. But the issue with those is um, if you've been in a really structured shoe, cushion shoe with a lot of support, going straight to a barefoot shoe, uh, it's a drastic change. Much like a lot of the drastic uh, swings, it will cause some issues. Your tissue is not used to that tolerating that load. So it has to be a gradual shift to that. And the easiest gradual shift, gradual shift is just being barefoot as much as possible, just around the house and things like that. Uh, and yeah, there is the big debate of barefoot running. If you've been in structured shoe, you want to go run in barefoot shoes. It's not going to be great. You just start off with walking and just be as barefoot as possible. Yeah. Cause I mean, you think, um, for, for people that don't obviously appreciate the, the difference with being barefoot and, and in a cushioned shoe, um, obviously once, once you've spent six months just wearing vivos or whatever, and you put a, a sort of regular trainer back on, it just, it feels awful. I think it does anyway. I just think it feels horrendous. Um, but if you go on vacation and you just walk around on the beach, say for, for the day or, or walk around by the pool, it's quite often people go, Oh man, my, my, my foot is absolutely aching uh, just from, you know, sort of two hours walking around barefoot. So obviously you do have to be very, very cautious of, of how much you're wearing them initially. And certainly I think going straight for, for the barefoot running, it, it's dangerous and, and you can get all sorts of problems, can't you? So we, like, how would you ease into that? Um, particularly on a golf course, if you go from say like a, a really cushioned shoe, would you, take two pairs with you and, and kind of split between them or, or how, what's the best way you think to do that? Um, I mean, if you have the space, you know, you might have to take out a couple of beers and put in the other pair of shoes, but. Or buy an extra uh, caddy. Yeah, exactly. If you got the caddy, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. Um, the biggest thing would be, again, pre-round, maybe doing some work through the foot. So just rolling a ball in the foot and getting, getting as much movement through there as you can before you go out. So then you're able to adapt to that. Cause the other big thing is people, when they go into barefoot shoes, their foot's too stiff to be adaptable. So it puts more strain in the other areas. So loosening up before you go uh, will help, but then otherwise uh, shortening the round, uh, maybe only playing nine instead of 18 in barefoot and then going to the car and then switching it up uh, just progressive, Progressive overload again. Um, and being on grass has, again, its benefits and things like that. It is a softer option, so it's easier on the foot being barefoot. But again, the undulating surface, your foot may not be, adapt be adaptable to that. So just playing around with it, but definitely trying to get some mobility through the foot before you go on the barefoot shoe is, is going to be a big one. And, and one more question about the, the sort of barefoot side of things. Do you think there's, I don't know if there's any data on this, um, but do you feel like you could maybe create more force or more directed force if you're in like a minimalist shoe compared to a cushion shoe? Like what would the, 
the difference be as far as force production in the golf swing be? Yeah, definitely. If you've got a really cushion shoe, you've got to push down into the cushion first for that force to then get dispersed into the ground. So you've got that, especially at the elite level, that, you know, minus, you know, seconds of impact going into the foam is going to create an impact. Um, and then also being able to go into the deceleration phase, so going into that lead leg and being able to post into that ground quicker will allow that dispersion force better. There isn't much data in terms of the barefoot stuff in golf yet. Um, there is definitely, it's mainly running sort of things like that, uh, but it increases that efficiency, but it is a much higher load on musculature. So again, that progressive overload is going to be necessary. Whereas when we get into that cushion shoe, we can rely on a little bit more of our joints to provide that. But the long-term strategy isn't great because of the forces on the joints. So imagine a flat wall for a Dustin Johnson in a barefoot shoe. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like how much ground force they are to create. It'd be incredible. Yeah, yeah well, I think, well, well, we'll look forward to seeing Colin's paper over the next sort of six months on... <laughs> Yeah, pushing forces in the in barefoot shoes. Yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm good. James, you got any other questions? No, I, I, no I'm uh, I'm happy with that. I mean, obviously, Colin, where can where can people find you? Are you on social media? Like, what's your website? And, and so, sort of how can we get more involved in the stuff that you're doing? Yeah, I'm not very active on social media, but I do have it on Instagram. It's just um, Colin T S Osteo on Instagram there. And then uh, I work at a couple of private practices in Vancouver. One is Movement Lab uh, Sports Performance Clinic in Gastown, which Chris comes to. So that's just uh, movementlab.com and you can see my profile there. And then I work at another one in uh, Kits in uh, Vancouver again. So that's chiintegratedhealth.com uh, there. And you can uh, book in a session if you need a bit more of assessment. It doesn't have to be golf related. Um, any sort of aches and pains and or if you want to just improve as well I'm there to help with um, therapies and a lot of um, active modalities as well appreciate it well thanks again Colin for coming on and I can attest to all the work that you've done with me from literally taking me not being able to really walk much to playing full-time golf again it's been great so and, uh, and thanks for fixing him up, Colin, because I'm sick of hearing him moan about all of his ailments and aches. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure to talk to you. No all right. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, guys.